So I wanted to tell you that Teresa has a new grandchild. Her daughter, Sarah, had her third baby, and Sarah's part of the study. And uh, Hayes, I believe, is his name. He came three weeks early, so that's why you get me. And um, anyway, it was in the Lord's timing, but all is good. And so she's taking care of her other grandkids, you know, the other two kids, plus probably doting on her daughter a little bit. I remember what that was like for me when I had my kids and my mom came to visit and helped. Uh, it was really a sweet time. So anyway, that's why Teresa's not here. So anyway. Hayes Braden. Hayes ba- Braden Meyer. Well, you know more than I do. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm sure when she comes back, she'll tell us more about it. Maybe she'll even show us pictures, you know. So anyway, let's pray and go to the Lord. Oh, Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning, and we pray that you will speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that you will give us ears to hear and hearts to understand what you want to say to us through your word today in this wonderful book of John. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be holy and acceptable to you, my rock and my redeemer, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so we are in uh, chapter 14 of the Gospel of John. It's a pretty important chapter. We're quickly gaining speed to the climax of John's portrait of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, God the Son. Jesus and the eleven are still in the upper room. As we read last week, uh, Judas has already left to betray Jesus. And Jesus is teaching them his final words before he takes up the cross. So the Lord has pulled back the curtain through John to an intimate conversation that he's having with his disciples. But these words are not only for them, they're for us too. Some commentators call John 13 through 17 Jesus' farewell address. This is not in my ear. I don't know what happened there. Sorry. Do I have that on right? I hope. So Jesus has just spent over three years with the disciples, and it's the eve of the hour for which he came. So remember how many times we read in John over the previous chapters that Jesus' hour has not come? Well, God's timing is perfect, and the Father's plan has been carried out by the Son perfectly. In a few short hours, Jesus will sweat blood as he anticipates the act of taking on our sin, and he'll be beaten and bruised for our transgressions, and he will have the nails pounded into his flesh. And he will hang on the cross for our sins, the most horrific death imaginable. So the hour is upon us. Have you ever known someone, or maybe it's you, that received the news that their life is terminal? You might be going through this right now. After the initial shock and despair, many times a person prioritizes their life into the most important to make use of the time left. Although Jesus always made use of his time perfectly... I believe that he's zeroing in on what his beloved disciples need to know the most and is preparing them for the next several days and weeks and years. He's also spending intimate time with them because he loves them 
and he desires our love in return while facing what is to come. We start off right away with John 14:1. It says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In the first sentence, I find the height of compassion from our Lord. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Remember, one of the twelve will betray him, Peter will deny him, and all will abandon him, according to Matthew and Mark's accounts, and he's the one facing the death sentence. But he turns his eyes towards his friends, his disciples. Jesus knows that they are feeling distressed and agitated. Why could their hearts be troubled? Well, Jesus just told them that he is leaving them and going back to the Father. The one that they left everything for is physically leaving them. Change is on the horizon. Fear of the future is probably coming over them. There was probably confusion about what he meant. Their expectations of the Messiah are having a head-on collision with the reality of the Messiah. We have hindsight into the scriptures because we know exactly what's going to happen. But the disciples didn't. They didn't know what would take place, even though Jesus had already told them. I also think that they could be distressed at the thought that they might have the capacity to betray him or deny him. How about you? What troubles your heart? Are you afraid of the future? Are you worried about finances or a particular relationship? What are your... What are your emotions when change comes, especially if it involves the loss of the presence of someone you love from death? Maybe they moved, or even an offense that someone has uh, taken up against you. Do you grieve when you think about your capacity to sin against the Lord or deny him with your lips or your actions, like Peter? Have you had some bad news recently that has sent your world spinning? Jesus tells them, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Our hearts are the center of our moral nature and spiritual life. Jesus is exhorting the disciples to not let their emotions of distress and sadness overtake their souls to the point that it will affect their behavior. In other words, it's our choice. Note, Jesus is not saying don't feel, but rather don't let your feeling control you. Now, how do we do this? Because it's hard. In the same breath, Jesus tells us the antidote to the overwhelming emotions. And I believe this is the key to the whole chapter. Believe in God, believe also in me. Believe in the Greek is the word pisteo, and I'm sure I'm not saying that right. But it means to think to be true or be persuaded of, and hence placing our confidence in, to trust and rely upon. In other words, it's not just believing with our heads something to be a fact, It results in action. It's a verb. And it signifies in the sense of the word reliance upon, not more credence. In other words, it's not simply an intellectual assent, but the intensely personal act of yielding up our will and our heart to a living person. I've heard it said that believing is like putting your full weight on something. So in other words, when you see a chair and you go to sit in a chair... Before you sit in it, you have belief that when you sit in that chair, it's going to hold you up. Well, it's the same way. We believe that when we put our faith in God and in Jesus, that he is going to hold us up. The verb is most frequent in the writings of the Apostle John, especially the gospel. And he doesn't use the noun. 
of belief. Of the writers in the Gospels, Matthew uses the verb pisteo 11 times, Mark 15, Luke 9, and John 100 times. That kind of blows me away. I think it's important. So believe in what? What are we to believe to be true that causes us to put our confidence and trust in? Or rather, who are we to believe in? The first thing that Jesus says is, don't let your hearts be troubled. God has a plan. Jesus says, put your trust and confidence in God. God has had a plan from before the foundation of the world for you and me to be in an intimate relationship with him. The fall of mankind in Genesis did not take God by surprise. It was not an aha moment for him. Even in the midst of the curse, God put in motion the redemption of mankind. Jesus wants his disciples, including us, to believe that God is the creator and ruler of all things and that he is the provider and bestower of eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. He wants us to believe and trust in the character of God, that he is trustworthy, good, and in control. Jesus also says to put your trust and confidence in him, a strong and welcome conviction or belief that Jesus is the Messiah through whom we obtain eternal salvation in the kingdom of God. Believe that Jesus is God incarnate, the exact representation of God's being, and that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan to redeem you and me into that loving relationship with God. Believe in the character of Jesus, who has already revealed things to us, like he is the living water, he is the good shepherd, he is the gate, he is the bread of life, he is the resurrection and the life, he is the great I am, one with God, in all, and through all. In other words, the way to not let our hearts be troubled or be distressed or agitated is simply put, genuine faith. It begins by trusting in God's very nature, lived out in Jesus Christ. How do we do that? It begins with surrender. We take God at his word and act upon it. We stop going our own way and submit to his way. Now we're going to learn many of the ways to do this in this very chapter. But it also says here that believing in God results in worship because our souls and spirits recognize who he is. So I think to, we need to daily praise God because God inhabits the praises of his people, the word says. He lives in our praise and changes us from the inside out. My heart becomes less anxious when I praise him. Have you found that to be true? My faith increases, and I am more able to give God control over my daily life. It happens from faith to faith and glory to glory. Also, we must believe that God really loves us. I think as women, we struggle with this the most. How can God really love me? Doesn't he see who I really am? Not believing in his love can cause us to be in a constant state of fear. I know because I lived there for years after I became a believer. But perfect love, who is Jesus, casts out all fear. When we get, into the marrow, get that into the marrow of our being, of how much God loves us, our troubled heart disappears to become a grateful heart. Believe in God, believe also in me. Then Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. Starting with verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. 
If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. <clears throat> he goes to prepare a place for us in his father's house. The father's house is where he lives, his dwelling place. Jesus is preparing a dwelling place for each one of us in the Father's house. Jesus prepares a place for us to dwell with God for all of eternity. Revelation 21, 2 through 5 says it like this, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will be his and he will be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death, there will no longer be any mourning, crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. That's the place where Jesus is going to prepare for us. In, in verse 2, Jesus emphasizes that he is telling them the truth, that this place is real. Otherwise, he would not have told them. God cannot lie, so you can take him at his word that he's preparing a place for you and me, his disciples. He is conveying hope for our future. We don't need to be worried or afraid. Jesus is our forerunner to take possession for us, our advocate, our attorney, securing our title deed to our place. In verse 3, he not only tells us that he's preparing this magnificent place, but he is our personal escort. He's coming back to get us, ladies. Jesus calls his believers his bride, and he is the bridegroom. His coming back to get, get us refers to part of the picture of the ancient Jewish marriage ceremonies that the disciples would have been familiar with. And I found a summary about this. I almost didn't put this in, but I I'm, I'm put it in because I think it's just so interesting. I found this a summary of it on gotquestions.org. So here's what it says about the the. Uh, ancient tradition um, wedding ceremony. A bride is acquired by a groom in one of three ways. This tradition involves the groom leaving his father's home and traveling to the bride's home to purchase her for a price. The groom gives a token or a dowry, and its value must be known to the bride. In all cases, the wife can only be acquired with her consent. The marriage contract, or ketubah, is then established and from that moment on, the bride is sanctified or set apart exclusively for her bridegroom. It is customary for the groom and the bride to drink from a cup of wine over which a betrothal benediction has been said. A Jewish betrothal was an important part of the marriage process, and it was as binding as marriage itself. It was a common custom for the bride to join the groom's father's household rather than the groom and the bride establishing their own household. So if the bride and the groom were of marriageable age, the groom would return to his father's house after the betrothal to prepare a bridal chamber. This process traditionally took a year or more, the length of time being dictated by the groom's father. When the place was complete, the groom would return and fetch his bride. The bride would not know the day or the hour of her husband's, husband-to-be's return, so the groom's arrival was usually announced with a trumpet call and a shout. Before the ceremony, which was attended by a select few, most likely family, the bride would take part in a ritual cleansing. After the ceremony, the couple would attend a wedding feast in their honor. 
It was customary for a wedding feast to include a much larger crowd than the ceremony itself, and it was a great celebration provided by the groom's family. After being whisked from her home, the Jewish bride remained hidden at the groom's father's house for seven days. In his time on earth, Jesus often used Jewish marriage customs as a beautiful allegory of God's relationship with his church, his bride. Jesus left the home of his father in heaven and traveled to the home of his prospective bride, earth, to purchase her for a price. That is, his own blood, according to 1 Corinthians 7.23. His bride has joyously consented to the match. He has given her a priceless token, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. With the establishing of the ketubah, the new covenant, Jesus' bride was sanctified for him, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. The communion wine is symbolic of the covenant by which Christ obtained his bride. Jesus purchased believers with his blood, shed on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. That's in Acts 20 and 1 Corinthians 6 and 11. He is currently preparing a place for us, John 14, 3, and a future time no one knows, Matthew 24, 36. He will return for his bride with a trumpet call and a shout, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. The dead in Christ and those alive in him will be taken to heaven, where they will be joined forever with the Lord, Revelation 19, 7. Those with a pre-tribulation rapture viewpoint believe that the Jewish bride being hidden for seven days is a picture that the church will remain hidden for a period of seven years during the prophesied tribulation period and take part in the marriage feast of the Lamb. After the seven days, the Jewish bride left the bridal chamber unveiled, and likewise, after seven years, the church will return to earth with Christ in full view of all, Colossians 3, 4. So isn't that interesting to just see the connection, how, how Jesus uses that? Now, why would this help a troubled heart? Because this is our hope, and it puts all things into perspective, and we can trust God to deliver on his promises. Our current home is temporary, and our future is bright, because one day we will live with the Lord, and our troubled hearts will be no more. We are to walk by faith in that promise and not by sight of the world and the circumstances around us. Hebrews 11.1 1 in the Amplified Bible says it this way. Now faith is the assurance, the confirmation, the title deed of things that we hope for, being the proof of the things that we do not see and the conviction of their reality. In other words, faith perceiving as real fact what is not revealed to the senses. The disciples were not going to have Jesus physically with them anymore, but faith brings about a change that, will rel- that relies on Jesus' words, not on his emotions, on their emotions. This is true for us. We do not have Jesus physically here, but we have his word that we can choose to put our faith in and the Holy Spirit as a seal of his promise. Revelation 2.5 confirms this. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making things new. And he said, write these words, write, for these words are faithful and true. Believe in God, believe also in me. In verses 4 and 5, he goes on to say, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Why does Jesus tell them that they know the way where he's going? He had already told them that he was going back to the Father. Thomas doesn't get it. Maybe the others didn't get it either, 
But Thomas was the one brave enough to go directly to Jesus and say, I don't get it. You can almost read panic in his voice, in his troubled heart. He wants to go where Jesus is going. Do you want to go where he's going, no matter what direction he takes you? Do you go directly to God when you're confused or you don't get something? Maybe Thomas heard Jesus but didn't really listen. Do you do that? I do. Sometimes I hear God tell me something, but I think, maybe I didn't hear God right. For me, it's usually because I don't want to hear what he's telling me. (laughs) But notice, Jesus doesn't chastise Thomas. He simply tells him the answer. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. I am the provision. In verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This verse states the very purpose of why Jesus came. He is the fulfillment of God's plan. He says, I am the way, which depicts a road, a highway, a way of travel. God the Father, through Jesus, provides the way of travel into the presence of God by way of the cross. By his own blood, he entered into the holy place. Isaiah 35, 8 says, a highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. Jesus is our direction. You can't inadvertently wander on the road of salvation. There is no entrance for all, no matter what you believe. But all can come onto it if they choose. We cannot enter our Heavenly Father's house in sin. The Bible tells us that God cannot have any part with sin because he is holy, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, according to Romans 3.23. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he tells us, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God's one and only provision through his one and only Son enables you and me to enter onto the one and only highway of holiness through the blood of Jesus Christ that makes us righteous before the one and only holy God. He is the road between heaven and earth. And we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, according to Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. He makes provision for us as our Savior. Next he says, I am the truth. In John 1 we learn that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is truth in his very nature. Aren't you glad that God tells us the truth? The world around us says that we all have our own truth. Really, that makes no sense to me, because what happens when one person's truth collides with another person's truth? Jesus told us in John 8.32 that we will know the truth, and the truth will make us free. He then goes on to say that he is the life. We are alive unto God only in and through Jesus Christ, Romans 6.11. Because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, death could not hold him. Jesus conquered death, and we are the beneficiaries of that if we belong to him. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even if he dies. We read about that in John chapter 11. In him was life, and life was the light of men. That's in John 1.4. John 17.3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And 1 John 5.11 and 12 says, And the testimony is this, 
that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And finally, he he says probably one of the most controversial statements in all of Scripture. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is an exclamation point that Christ is our high priest, our mediator, our advocate, as described in the book of Hebrews. If Christ is not our mediator, then we come before him as judge. Only through Christ's mediation can we come to God as Father. When you come to the Father through Christ, Jesus' blood covers all your sin, past, present, and future. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25 Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life is the provision of God for us. We enter on the road of salvation by receiving his gift of grace through faith, according to Ephesians 2. After he has merged our souls with himself and gives us a new spirit, he guides and directs our path in truth in order that we may walk where he has called us. He is our sanctification, purifying us into his image, even as we hit the potholes of sin and circumstance. He is our redemption, bringing us completely into the presence of God and our relationship with him for all of eternity. He is our beginning, our middle, and our end. In him, by faith, we must set out and go on and finish. So don't be troubled. Choose to turn your face his way, and let's walk in it. Let's keep our eyes on the road, the Lord Jesus. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Put your full confidence in the promise that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, 6. After multiple heartaches in her life, including her husband leaving her because she became blind, Helen H. Lemmel wrote a hymn. Now, remember, she's blind. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full at his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus is our provision. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Then Jesus tells us to not let our hearts be troubled because God is personal. In verse 7, he said, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Jesus, again, is talking about his oneness with God the Father and his deity. He is unraveling the mystery of the triune Godhead right before their very eyes. The Father God initiates his plan and the Son carries it out. Access to the Father comes through the connection with the Son. Relationship with Jesus means relationship with the Father. In Romans 8.15, it says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by which we cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. In verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Here we see yet another disciple not connecting the dots. Doesn't this give you hope? These guys were with Jesus over three years, and it's the eve of Jesus' death, and they're still asking questions. 
It gives me hope because there are many times, many things about God that I still don't get. Philip has come a long way since the beginning of his journey with Jesus, but his desire is to know the Father, and he wants to believe. He even goes so far as to say that knowing the Father will be sufficient. The burning desire of every believer ought to be to know God better. I ask myself, how much time am I willing to spend getting to know God better? And is my relationship with him enough for me? In verse, starting with verse 9, it says, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to, me, to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. We don't have to wait for heaven to get to know God, the Father. Heaven came to earth. Jesus seems to be saying to Philip, You've been with me all this time, and you still don't really know who I am? Philip was close to Jesus, but he still missed who Jesus is. Before we criticize Philip too much, can't that be true of us also? We can belong to Jesus, but not really know him. We can hear sermons, come to Bible study, and even read the scriptures and still be weak in our knowledge of our Lord. Just as Jesus has a deep, intimate connection with the Father, so we too need an intimate connection with the Father through Jesus. And when we become more intimate with Jesus, we become more intimate with the Father. David Guzik says it this way, It forever finishes the idea that the Hebrew scriptures present a cruel God, and Jesus showed us a nicer God. Rather, Jesus shows us the same love, compassion, mercy, and goodness that was and is in God the Father. Jesus again reiterates that all he does is from the Father, and the Father lives in Christ, and all his works are an outpouring of that relationship. He's been telling us that over and over in John, hasn't he? The emphasis here is that Christ's words and works cannot be separated, for both come from the Father and reveal the Father. The very creator and governor of our universe is our own Father, if we believe in Christ. So there is no need for a troubled heart. He is in control. He is the lover of our souls. He is our daddy. He is personal. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. God has a purpose for us. The disciples were probably thinking, if he's going to leave us, what's going to happen to me? Do you ever wonder about the future? I do. Jesus begins to introduce them to the plans he has for them. What will become their mission and ultimately the mission of the church? It is his partnership with his disciples, past, present, and future, that reaches a lost world for him. He says in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. When Jesus uses the words truly, truly, he's saying, I know this firsthand to be true, so pay attention what I'm about to say. This is only used in the book of John. Believers in Jesus will do greater works than Jesus, not in type, but in scope and quantity. It includes a sphere of influence. These greater works will not be done by the believers themselves, but God working in and through them in the power of the Holy Spirit, 
giving glory to both the Father and the Son. I encourage you to go home and read Acts 2. After receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, Peter gave his first sermon. Over 3,000 believed. More and more were added to the church daily. So there we see it. Uh, They are in greater in scope and quantity. Jesus will partner with his believers all through the ages to accomplish his purpose to call people to the kingdom of God. When we belong to Jesus, he wants to flow through us to fulfill his purpose on earth until he comes again. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, We have been saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It's not your work so that nobody can boast. But for the next, ver- the next verse tells us what we are saved for, our purpose. Verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. John Bevere in his book Multiply rephrases this verse like this. We are saved by grace to first be someone, a child of God, and we are equally empowered by that same grace to do something. Who we are in Christ is paramount to what we do, for anything we do should be an outflow of who we are. So I'm going to share a story with you about about these kinds of works, and it's about Brenda Gaskin's daughter, and she gave me permission to share this. Um, she was Lisa was diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer. Now, this is a punch in the gut. However, Lisa makes a tin of cookies to give to every person that provides help with her treatment, including the man who serves as the valet when she pulls up to get her treatment. She does this every treatment cycle. It's having an impact, an eternal one, because they are attracted to the Savior in Lisa. She has also given each one a Bible and shares that it is the Lord that is getting her through this. What a witness to the love and joy of our Savior to reach out to those in need by using a suffering servant in Lisa. She is following the pattern of Jesus. And she is walking out the works that God prepared for her to do, even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. She is not counting her days, but rather making her days count eternally. What an example she is to me. And no matter where we are in life, we too can serve others to testify to the Lord in our life. Our purpose was created by God before the world was ever created. Do you know that? Do you know that your works were prepared by your heavenly Father before the foundation of the world was ever spoken into existence? Will you choose to surrender to his will and walk in them? God prearranged our works, but it is up to us to walk in what he planned. What we do in the will of God strengthens us, too. We are most content, satisfied, and joyful when we are walking out the works that God chose for us. It is an antidote to a troubled heart. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus then says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I will give you prayer. In 13 and 14, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus is speaking about keeping the communication lines open, conversing with God, fostering our relationship with him, prayer. It is a key antidote to a troubled heart. First, we must pray in Jesus' name. Now, Jesus tells us 
that anything we ask in his name will be done. This is not a magic formula to guarantee our request if we say in Jesus' name. God is not Santa Claus. It means that anything we ask of the Father in Jesus' name would be what Jesus would ask, what would please him, and what would bring him glory furthering his work. My name is the controlling element. To know God's name means to know his nature, what he is, and what he wants to do. Prayer must honor his name. God's glory should always be our focus because that is how Jesus always answers our prayers. Laura spoke last week about WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, I'm adding a new one. WWJP, what would Jesus pray? Maybe I should get bracelets made. <laughs> if you're not sure about, about praying, 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, this is the confidence with which we have had before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. When you're not sure about what to ask, we talked about this in group, go to the word. Pray the word back to him. We know that's his will. And even if you're still kind of confused, ask with an open heart, willing to receive and Be willing to say, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus answers our prayers based on the assurance that the Father gets the glory. When we pray, the Lord will not hear if we hold iniquity and sin in our heart, according to Psalm 66, 18. In other words, the power of God is squelched in us if sin is blocking our relationship with God. Anne taught me to to keep a short account with God. And in 1 John 1, 9, it tells us how to do that. And we all know that verse, right? Let's say it together. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we pray out of love. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Here is the key. Relationship, not religion. Keeping Jesus' commandments is directly correlated to our love relationship with him. In other words, obeying Jesus is an outflow of our intimacy with him. We're going to learn more about that in John chapter 15. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It is no accident that Jesus gives the prescription on how to love others by first loving God. It is an intentional love, a decisive love, a sacrificial love, surrendering our will, our desires, and our time to love him first. Why? Because he first loved us. I am so easily distracted. Are you? How often do we get so focused on the commandments that we forget to go to the one who commanded them? I heard Phil Vischer, the founder of Veggie Tales, one time on the radio say this. Somebody asked him, where do you see yourself in five years? His response was, it's none of my business. It's my job to get on my knees every morning and keep my nose in the word and wait for the instruction of the Lord. Waiting is so important because we must be in a position to hear God's voice, his still, small whispers. Wow, I need to be reminded of that. I can get so caught up in thinking about what I'm doing, how I'm doing the Lord's work, that I forget to hear from God if that's actually the work that he wants me to do. When I intentionally love God and make my relationship with him my priority, I have the knowledge of his will, the power, and the desire to obey his commandments, and the relationship to hear what he says to me. 
I am his sheep, and I hear my shepherd's voice. And the more I do it, the more I fall in love with him, and the more I want to do it again. Prayer is the antidote to a troubled heart. Believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus goes on to tell us to not let our hearts be troubled. God will give you power. In verses 16 and 17, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Jesus introduces the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. He gives him two special names. The first is the helper or comforter that's translated. The Greek word is parakletos, which means called alongside to assist. Jesus also uses the word another, which means another of the same kind. He is another of the same kind of the one true God. Jesus knows that neither the disciples nor we can live the life to which he calls us without supernatural power. The idea is not just to console someone or soothe someone alone, but to do it with strength. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. Warren Wearsby says, True comfort strengthens us to face life bravely and keep on going. We need the Holy Spirit to help us because we cannot fulfill the purpose God gave to each one of us in our own natural ability. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth. He is related to Jesus, who is the truth and the Word of God. The Spirit inspired the Word, and he also illumines it so we may understand it. Ephesians 5.18 commands us to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is the same as to be controlled by the Word. The Spirit of Truth uses the Word of Truth to guide us into the will and work of God. The Holy Spirit abides or lives in the believer and is a gift from the Father in answer to the prayer of the Son. Hmm. Do you remember when Teresa taught us about the Holy Spirit referencing a glass of milk? That we are that glass of milk and the Holy Spirit is chocolate. Okay, it's a little bit, but it works. When we become Christians, God pours the Holy Spirit into us to live in us forever. Just like we pour chocolate into our glass of milk. And unless the chocolate is stirred to make the chocolate milk, the chocolate falls to the bottom and you have plain milk again. Like us, unless we are stirred with the word of God, we are not filled with the spirit. Thus we look like our old selves and we have no power. By the way, notice the chocolate is always in the glass, even if it falls to the bottom. When we accept Christ into our hearts, the Holy Spirit comes into us and is always with us forever. But is your life plain milk? Or are you stirring your relationship with Jesus into your heart and mind daily through the word of God, prayer, and obedience, making your life filled with the tastiness and richness of the Spirit? The world doesn't recognize them because they walk by sight, not by faith, and they do not know Jesus, and you cannot have the knowledge of the Spirit apart from the Son. So don't be caught off guard when others don't see what you see by faith. Don't let your hearts be troubled. God gives us his presence. In 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, 
and you in me, and I in you. The word orphans has the connotation of comfortless. The disciples will not be alone, abandoned, hopeless, or helpless, and neither are we. Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. Okay, let me say that again. Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. Do you believe that? His very presence is with us always. I will come to you points to the time when he is visible to them after his resurrection. Only his own will see him after the resurrection. Acts 10, 40 and 41 says, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. The world will no longer see him because they walk by sight and not by faith. Realizing that he would no longer be visible after his ascension, Jesus comforts them with verse 20. Some think in that day, that he, he says, um, in that day you will know that I am in the Father, that, some, that that actually refers to the day of Pentecost, when they will finally understand and have God's very presence within them. If you belong to Jesus, you are alive. Jesus' very presence lives in you and me. Therefore, we have no need to have a troubled heart when we have God himself present within us. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Don't let your hearts be troubled. God gives us his love. Starting in verse 21, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Jesus is revealing an incredible truth to the disciples, and he's expounding on verse 15. But this time, the focus is not our love toward him, but his love toward us. He who has my commandments are those that belong to God through Jesus Christ. But it is those believers who keep those commandments that demonstrate that they love Jesus. If we love him, then we will obey him. And when, Jesus, and when we obey Jesus, God does several things. First, the Father pours out his love on us in an intimate and tender love. This is a very different concept for the disciples, who are Jews, because God has never been accessible or close. Second, Jesus promises that he will reveal himself to those who obey. In other words, we receive his deeper love and intimacy. He will disclose secret things about himself to those he's closest to, according to John 16, 13, and 14, and Deuteronomy 29, 29. The Holy Spirit teaches us all things that we need to know, and he even provides for brain lapses when we can't remember. I count on that frequently. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit also make their home in us. It makes me think of a special friend coming over for dinner. They make themselves at home, and we eat together, and we spend time together, and we enjoy each other's presence. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, and he will and will dine with him, and he with me. 
What an invitation. God is offering a full, intimate, and special relationship with us. Ladies, Jesus, the creator of the universe, the king of kings, the great I am, is requesting fellowship and intimacy with us. He is a gentleman and will not barge his way in. He knocks and speaks to us, waiting for us to open the door of our busy, chaotic, and stressful lives. He will only come in if we give him a personal invitation. He longs to walk along the highway of holiness with us, to guide us and even carry us when necessary. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Choose to open the door of your daily life to him. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I give you my peace. 27 starts off, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Jesus addresses the troubled heart directly here. He promises peace. I believe he's telling the disciples that he knows that they're afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm going away. Don't be afraid of the future. Don't be afraid of the changes that will take place. We are in control. I must go in order for God's will to take place. I will pro- provide everything you need, and the cherry on top is my peace. The world's peace is false. The world's system says, put your hands in your leaders. Put your hands in your self-abilities. Put your hands in controlling your own destiny. Put your hands in the culture because we've evolved. That hasn't really worked out for us, has it? Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, ladies, I want you to just close your eyes for a second for me. I want you to think about something that makes you anxious. Okay? Now, does whatever that is that's making you anxious, does that fall into the category of nothing? Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, does that fall into the category of everything? Now, I want you to, right now, in the quietness of your heart, present that to God and ask him for whatever it is that you need help with in that anxiousness. In addition to that, think of something that you can be thankful for in regard to this. Thank God, maybe it's his very presence, that he's with you in the midst of this. Maybe it's that he has the authority and power to fix the situation. Maybe it's just that he's giving you his peace at this very moment. Whatever it is, give him that thanksgiving. Let those requests be made known to God. And maybe you'll have to go home and do that again. That peace, which surpasses all comprehension, it will guard He will set up soldiers around your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So I encourage you and exhort you, take those anxious thoughts, we all have them, to him. And maybe you have to do it multiple times in a day. I encourage you to do that. Okay. 
When we surrender our anxious hearts, our Lord Jesus exchanges them with an incomprehensible peace. And he's asking you to put your heart in his hands. He's exhorting us to do that. Have you ever experienced his peace ever? You have to have peace with God in order to experience the peace of God. Perhaps you have never received peace with God by saying yes to his free gift of of his paying your sin debt on the cross in exchange for his righteousness. That's how we get peace with God. Then the peace of God can flow freely to you. Jesus is talking to you now. If you have never done that, do not put it off one more minute. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You can ask him right at this very second to pay your debt for you. And finally, he says, Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. He's telling the disciples all this beforehand. Why? So they may believe. They will be reminded of all he told them, and instead of giving into a broken heart, they will instead have faith and know that their future is bright. He says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up and let us go from here. Jesus names two of our greatest enemies, the devil and the world, and the third one is our flesh. He overcomes both by climbing on the cross. Jesus showed his love for the Father and the world by voluntarily laying down his life in total surrender to the Father. Neither enemy has any part in him, nor can trouble our hearts if we are yielded to the peace of God through the Holy Spirit. Jesus brings the disciples and us full circle. He has told us not to let our hearts be troubled because we need to trust and have confidence in God and in him. He has a plan for us. He is preparing a place for us to live with him forever. He provides the way for us. He's a personal God, and he has a purpose for us. He gives us prayer to talk to him. He gives us his power. His presence lives within us. He pours his love into us, and to top it all off, he gives us his peace to let let that drive our highway of life. When we experience his peace, we are experiencing God. There is nothing like enjoying the very presence of our Lord. What a God. What a Savior. So Jesus says, get up, let us go from here. This is Jesus' command that begins his journey on the road of sacrifice and forgiveness, the road of the cross. He has given us everything we need to walk his path for our lives, faith, hope, and a future, direction, truth, life, purpose, power, prayer, and peace. So let's pick up our cross and follow him. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Savior Jesus, how amazing you are. We bow before you and we thank you that you have pulled back the curtain so we could see into these intimate words that you gave to the 11, but yet you are speaking to us or you wouldn't have written it down for us. Thank you, Lord that you have provided everything we need to be in this relationship with you. We pray, Father, that you will change us from the inside out and to have a more close and intimate relationship with you and that we will get to know you better today more than we did yesterday. Thank you, Father, that you pour your love into us and through us. And we just pray, Father, that, that we will 
taste and see how good you are and how loving you are as our Heavenly Father. And we bow before you and we look forward to the day that when you will come back and get us. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name, amen. One minute over.